Hello, and welcome to Sound Outside's Game of Thrones podcast. This is Kate Kulzig, joined once again by Mike Waldman. Hello, and thanks for having me. And this week, sitting in on third chair for Masterpiece Cinema, it's Josh Beagle. Hey, thanks for having me. So, uh, Josh, as listeners to the podcast will know, Mike and I are both very familiar with the books. Let's just start off with that. Are, are you a TV show fan, a book fan? I am a very lazy book fan because I have the first four books in my house and I've done a great job of reading one and a third of them. Uh, I've read about 300 pages of the second book. So we we are now officially into the period of the show where I am completely new to what's going on for the most part. I imagine that's actually a rather interesting viewing experience because of the way that they've been sort of skipping forward in most of these storylines. I imagine you'll get yeah. go from one scene where you, you know what's going on, you've already read it, to the next scene you don't. Is that the case? Uh, yes, that's true. The one thing I'd, I'd noticed in a couple of reviews, because I think most reviewers got to see the first four episodes, so I think up to this one that we, we just saw on Sunday, and they kept mentioning that Jon Snow's storyline really skipped ahead a lot, and it definitely does, because the little bit I've read of his story in the book doesn't even get him to Craster's Keep. So that's completely new for me. But, you know, I, I don't have the same problem that some people might have in terms of it feeling disjointed or not episodic. I'm, I'm just I'm loving the journeys, even if it doesn't feel like an hour of television, just a one part of a longer season, a longer story. So absolutely. Well, last week, we really loved the episode for for me. I think it's one of the best that the series has done. What did you guys think about this week, how it followed on from last week, and also just how each of the storylines within the episode worked? I was really happy with it this week. Um, I, I feel that the pace is... We talked about this last week, and I think we all mentioned it, um, and I think it was we were all correct in that I think they spent the first couple episodes setting up the, you know, the really laborious task of establishing who everybody is, what everybody's motivation is, reminding people of what happened last season, um, teasing at the complexities to come. But I think now that they've established that, they're going to sort of progress with the storylines they've they've set for the for the foreseeable future. Um, so I think this episode really had a lot of traction. Like they really hit the ground, and there was a lot of a lot of action, as I'm, I'm sure we'll discuss. I think, frankly, I think the whole season has hit the ground running in some ways. Like they had to set up who the characters were for anybody who maybe for some reason is starting this show in season two, which would be crazy to me. But I think all the episodes have moved very well. I think especially the last two episodes have been just really fast paced. And I think what sets this one apart was how dark it is. It's an extremely dark episode for a show that is not exactly a shiny, happy, fun time to begin with. I mean, it was one of the scenes that I'm sure we'll talk about in more depth with Joffrey and the two prostitutes was extraordinarily rough to watch. You know, it was intense in a good way, but really uncomfortable in a way that the show hasn't gone so far this season as much. Yeah, I, yeah, I would agree. I think that's a really common, at least because the podcast is a little late getting out this week due to some scheduling conflicts. So I've gotten to hear more of the, the reaction from, from different people about this episode. I think that's a common note about this episode, it, though it has kind of made me feel kind of terrible in that I didn't feel like it was 
incredibly dark, but I think that just means I've been watching too much Breaking Bad and, uh, <laughs> you know, The Wire and Sopranos and stuff. Uh, so I'm just, and especially having read the book, I, I, I'm just so inured to some of this. But yeah, even just the the visualization of let's let's go to, for example, um, the the Arya star storyline. So the we meet the tickler this week and uh the the scenes with with the the torture i was very nervous about how that was going to be executed and it's just such a a simple way of 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 showing torture and it leaves everything to the imagination and i think it was so so well done and definitely affecting i totally agree i was i was also a little bit apprehensive about how they were going to handle that and i think they did a great job i think that the joffrey stuff I think they veered away from the obvious implications of uh, rape, which we talk about or I talk about a lot on the show. I think it's probably an indication that they're going to move. For the people that thought that this episode was dark, and it certainly is a pretty dark episode, it so pales in comparison to the stuff that happens almost constantly in the book. So I, I think it's clear that they're going to go with a, a a more realistic, slightly pared down version, like more realistic in terms of what you can portray on screen. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm certainly happy with that. I think it's, I think this was uncomfortable enough. Nobody, nobody wants it to be orders of magnitude more uncomfortable. So I'm just curious then, cause I haven't read the part in the book with Joffrey. Is there, how much different is that scene in the book? Cause I know he's not a point of view character, so I assume we're only hearing about it from other people having heard about it. But I mean, how does that present it in the book? I don't actually remember that specific scene in the book. I'm not even sure if it was there. One of my beefs with the book is that by the end of the second book and certainly into the third and fourth, I think there's just such an enormous amount of sexual violence. It's just almost constant. And I think this at least veered away from that somewhat. I mean, he essentially hands her a giant giant metal penis with horns on one end of it. Uh, I think the implications were clearly there. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's true. <laughs> But they're, I, I, like I said, I think it's a good thing that they seem to be deciding on a slightly more pared down version. There, there's a scene that is in one of the Tyrion point of view chapters. We do get him taking Joffrey to a brothel. Uh, so there, there is a scene that's similar or at least structured similarly. Oh, that's right. I remember that. Um, but, but yes, it's definitely, uh, because Joffrey isn't a point of view character, it's it's a new addition to to the to the from the books that that is. Yeah. And I do one of the things you got to say about Joffrey. Well, first of all, the performer Jack Gleason is doing such yeah. a great job. Every time I think I can't hate him more, I do. They find a new way, uh, and I think that's actually without it being repetitive too, which I think is uh, very interesting. They've really developed him as a character from not just being uh, a little, uh, basically a little shit to actually being more malevolent and outright, outright sadistic. And, and you can see the effect that being raised by Cersei in this sort of an environment has had on him. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah. He's a great actor. I mean, his performance is excellent. I feel bad for him, the kid, because I can't see him doing anything ever again without everybody hating him. I agree. He's so hateable. <laughs> and he's, I mean, uh, he's definitely getting into it. It's funny. It's uh, its a lazy comparison, but I, he reminds me a little bit of the kid who played Dra Draco Malfoy in the Harry Potter movies. But, I mean, Draco is, you know, he, he's a Sesame Street character to compare to, to Joffrey. It's just, he's very... 
believable, but at the same time, I mean, I feel like every time he's on screen, I just want him to die in the most painful way imaginable, which almost doesn't allow him to be very <laughs> complex as a character, but it's a minor flaw. Well, that's a good point. He is a little bit of a, a bit of a one-dimensional, like, super, super villain. He no. doesn't exactly have a lot of depth, but I think it's also believable to some degree in terms of in terms of a character with that much malevolence and that much narcissism that sort of just consumes him. Well, and I do think that we actually did get some shading from him earlier in the season in his scene with Cersei uh, where he confronts her about the rumors about his parentage. I thought that was a little more nuanced and um, and interesting, and but that they've sort of gone away from that since that moment. We haven't had a similar sort of interaction between him and Cersei, and I don't know that we necessarily will. In, in the course of the season, but I, d- I do like that it's not just perhaps uh, consumed with these set of, of traits that we've seen from him as the character is. I, d- I do feel like this is a real person as opposed to a, a cardboard cutout sort of villain. I would agree with that. Like, I, and I think like you said before, I think, you know, R.R. R. Martin and the actors have set up a believable chain of causality where, you know, a, co- a combination of being a sociopath from birth and a horrible parenting of, you know, created this person. And I, I think he's believable in that. You know, I, I like we said, I think he might be a little one dimensional, but I think that, too, is believable. I mean, 14 year old boys at the best of times are violent. <laughs> well, not just that, but <laughs> well, it's pretty narcissistic generally, too. I mean, I think if they're king, that's that's probably a certainty. Yeah, let's uh, talk about, for me, one of the, the scenes that I really liked early, uh, Just I guess not even a scene, just a touch. Now, Tyrion has been, for for much of the season, one of our main leads. Here, he, he is his role is far more limited, um, but I, I really liked the the touch of his scene at the beginning with Sansa. I th- again, I think Sophie Turner is doing a great job as, as Sansa and really making that character so much more interesting than it has the potential to be. Um, but I, I loved just that brief moment between them. Yeah, I think that was a, a smart move. But I think what I liked about the episode also, it's a dark episode, but all of the comic relief, all of the humor, which comes almost entirely from Peter Dinklage as Tyrion. And usually that's the case, but here especially his humor, was it, it works so well because so much of the other episode, even that scene where he comforts Sansa after... You know she's being you know abused by Sir Marin. I, I just that his humor, the 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 bit where he actually threatens Sir Marin and tells him, oh, "See, that's the part. difference." <laughs> I love that. It's so funny, and he like, Dinklage is such a good actor that he's able to change between just being this this cad, this almost this rogue, and being a gentle human being. I, I thought that was good. The one thing that I was surprised about is that I believe in the timeline of the episode we see him talking with Lancel Lannister after the scene where Joffrey, you know, has the, pro, you know, the one prostitute beat the other one. I was surprised unless I missed the scene where, where Tyrion finds out about that. I guess I was waiting for the, the re- revelation of that. And maybe that'll come in next week's episode, but I kind of figured that we would find out, he would find out the message that Joffrey gave him through that beating. Maybe that's just me. I imagine that's, to come, yeah, I don't know if we'll see him react to that. What do you think, Mike? I think maybe that'll just prove to be indicative of their power struggle, essentially. Um, one thing that is interesting is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in my memory of the book, 
the show certainly seems to be overplaying or more playing up the idea that Joffrey has um, a viable power struggle with Tyrion. Initially in the book, Tyrion really comes to town and much to, you know, Cersei and Joffrey's chagrin is 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 quite firmly in charge for a while until they start, you know, negotiating things. But the the show certainly seems to be playing up their power struggle a lot more head to head. Like in the book two, Cersei is much more the intermediary between the two. Um Joffrey and uh and Tyrion certainly seem to be going directly at each other more on the show, which is interesting and I kinda like it. Um, but it's definitely a change, I think. I don't really see that, actually. I, for for me, perhaps because, as Bronn mentions in this episode, Joffrey's spending all of his time bored at court kind of torturing people. He's not trying to actually run the kingdom at all. And that's really... Then Tyrion is running everything. It's just in, in his interactions with Joffrey, they, they, I mean, they've been antagonistic, but... I don't feel like Joffrey is actually wielding any particular power other than in the the way he interacts one on one with with Oh, Tyrion. that's all I mean. I just I mean that they seem to be having more of a direct conflict than I remember in the book. In the book I remember mostly playing up the idea that Joffrey spent most of his time shooting rabbits and puppies and stuff like that. Um here they seem to be going having a a more di- directly antagonistic relationship. Which I think is interesting and probably plays on screen a little bit more interestingly. Yeah, I would agree. Um, the other thing I want to make sure to mention about about Tyrion and is that I I really like the way the writers to go back to Sansa again. I really like the way the writers have 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 given Tyrion such clear and strong respect for Sansa and for her strength and abilities because I think. Well, I think that's in the the books as well, but I think that it's something that elevates Sansa because she has the respect and admiration for of Tyrion for the way that she's holding herself and keeping herself together in the situation. I think it really um, raises her in the eyes of the viewer because if if Tyrion respects her, then we should respect her. Yeah, it's a good point. I, I I think I like the way that that scene ended with him realizing she's maybe stubborn. And single-minded, but that can help her survive, even if that's kind of how Joffrey is. I, I liked that. Let's move to uh, what I know, at least for me, is uh, one of my favorite parts. Let's talk a little bit about uh, about everything with Littlefinger and, and Renly and what's going on in the Stormlands. Why was that your favorite part? I'm curious. Oh, I, I well, first of all, I think that Aiden Gillen is just eating the role of Baelish you know, with a, with with a, gi- a giant spoon, gobbling it down, having so much fun with the character, and also just his—I really liked his his scene with Marjorie Terrell yeah. and just walking through the camp. And I mean, the character is is incredibly intelligent, which is always interesting to me, but also hard to read. And and much like Tyrion, you get a lot of the comedy uh, from that. So I think. Just whenever Peter Baelish shows up on screen, I'm interested. I like those story, those scenes. I have always had a hard time with Aiden Gillen as Littlefinger for a number of reasons that are definitely problems I need to deal with. One of them is <laughs> the Wire. I, when well, one the of them is the Wire. Wire. Yeah, it, it helps. It, yeah, the fact that he's from the Wire. That's the first one. The, the, the bigger one. When I was reading the books, I kept imagining Tom Hollander 
from Atonement and Hannah and the Pirates of the Caribbean movies as this character. I just thought he would have done the kind of the oiliness a little better. And this is the last thing. I feel like half the time Aiden Gillen had to go into the recording booth to re-record his his dialogue. It always feels a little distant to me. And maybe that 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 might be entirely me and my terrible hearing, but it always feels like he has to record some of his lines again, which just it feels distant. I, I liked that scene with Marjorie, especially because I think the actress Natalie Dormer, she's really good so far as Marjorie. But something about Peter Baelish, I feel like I I don't engage with the character as much as I want to, based on how much I like his character in the book, like like to hate, I guess, his character mm-hmm. in the book. But I don't know, they're, they're, they're a bit of a distraction with me. I like Aiden Gillen on the Wire, just less so here i always think of tom hollander from the the remake of pride and prejudice he's such a great collins um, yeah he was that too yeah, yeah. Uh, mike what do, what do you think um I, I i think i come down somewhere in the middle between you guys i i like him a lot i loved him in the wire it is very hard for me not to think of him as the mayor of baltimore um <laughs> I think maybe I agree that he seems a little distant from this. Maybe it's only that I know – I think it's that I know that he doesn't have that accent. I'm not familiar enough with everybody else to know what they sound like necessarily, but I know for sure that he's putting on an accent. So maybe that distances me just a little bit from him. But I like him. I like seeing him on screen. I I found this stuff maybe in the in the north a little a little slower this week. What's interesting is that people that haven't read the book might assume that they're glossing over battle sequences by, you know, just showing that thing with the wolf. But they're actually not. That's actually how the books play out, which is one of the most interesting features of the book is that um, he glosses over battle scenes mostly. There's very, very few, except for one huge notable exception that we all know is coming this season. There, it's, not a, it's not a series that really focuses on big, big battle sequences at all, which I'm sure makes it a lot more tenable just – you know, from a production point of view right away when they were looking at it, too. I'm definitely looking forward to the next couple episodes now that I know it's coming. And I think maybe it's time that we can talk about um, the way the episode ended. Well, do we want to save that for the end or do we want to do because we, we still need to talk about Danny? Oh, yes. Let's talk about Danny. And the car theme. <laughs> the cars, yeah. The- okay, I'm going to say that we had the first moment in the show where I was disappointed with an effect sequence. When they open the gates to Quarth, you're like, eh, that looks a little like Thousand Leagues Under the Sea or, you know, some like like colorized version of like a silent era film almost. Like it was just so on the nose. Mm-hmm. Um, also, just dimension wise, you're thinking, so there's a whole ocean right there. It's bigger on the inside. But how could they not? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. I got it. That's exactly what it looked like, funnily enough. <laughs> Who would want to go on the TARDIS version of Karth? <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just take the TARDIS itself, man. I don't need TARDIS and Karth. I'll just take the TARDIS. But <laughs> the the uh, effects for that were clearly, I mean, I, you can try to sell it as the, the heat, you know, was kind of blurring the air a little bit. And that's what, but <laughs> it just, it wasn't, it wasn't particularly good. But the scene, out, the sequence outside of, of Karth was, I think, fantastic. And it's nice to see see Danny be both strong and fiery and the the leader that she has the potential to be, but also vulnerable at the same time. And I love that she found a way with assistance, of course, but to, to get what she wanted without having to 
to give in and show her dragons. As I'm sure the effects department appreciated as well. I was going to say that. I'm sure the producers <laughs> loved that decision too. I liked that scene a lot. I, I'll be honest with you. I didn't have any problem with the effects, but that was because I was just so happy we were getting an, an actual scene with Danny. It feels like this was her biggest storyline yet. And I, I really enjoyed her story from the first season, so I was glad to see her get such a big part of the show. And since her character is so separate from all of the other stories, even if they're all taking place in different parts of Westeros. I, I was glad that she got that big monologue that you were talking about, Kate, that both strong and completely vulnerable. She's at the mercy of these mostly uh, highfalutin, you know, <laughs> snot-nosed people. <laughs> you know, God I, I was... Parthine. I know, right? I, I was glad to have that scene. That was a really well done. And Amelia Clark, I think, really sold that speech quite well. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to more from, I'm going to, I know that he says it in the show, but Jaro Jean Daxos, is that it? kind of right? Zaron Zoron Zaxos. I don't, I think he's going to be my new character that I find annoying. Oh yeah? I'm going to have to say like, <laughs> I, I liked the other guys, although I wish Wallace Shaw was still alive because he would make a great Quarthine. Um Wallace Shaw, he's still alive. You sure? I thought Wallace Shaw died. Yeah. I... Wallace Shawn from The Princess Bride, right? Yes, I'm Wallace pretty sure Shawn he does. He, he is, no, he is alive and well. I, you gave me a heart attack there. Oh, what? <laughs> interesting digression. Wallace Shaw, if, Sean. You, if you're listening, Sean, uh, shout out. I'm happy you're still alive. Yeah, you should have gotten this role. He, he would have been, been good as that character. Yeah, he would have been. Um, in fact, to the point where I feel like when people do that kind of characters, I've, I feel like they're almost doing him from The Princess Bride because he's almost the archetype. Um, but the Zaron Zaron Zaxos guy, I don't know. I'm not buying it. He seems annoying. I'm, I'm sensing my new character that just sort of irritates me when he comes on screen. <laughs> well, I hope and you're not too not, excited about that. <laughs> there's not too much Jon Snow right now, so my level of irritation with the show is very low, but he's threatening it. I like Jon Snow. Come on. I, I oh. like this guy, too, although I can't even begin to pronounce his name. My wife thought his last name was Duck Sauce. So <laughs> that, that might have been one of the first ones where the name felt a little too fantasy novel-ish. It, didn't, like, it felt like a flourish that was, I guess, not unnecessary because they're in a more exotic locale, but it was a little... It's less, it's less egregious in the book, I think, when you're reading it. Yeah. Um, it's well, Zaro Zoron Zaxos. It's just it's Daxos, use, actually. Yeah, they use a lot of X. Yeah. So, so I think once we hear it a few more times, it will become more familiar, and it won't be a problem. I mean, Daenerys Targaryen—that's not necessarily something that rolls off your tongue. Uh, well, but... That's why you call her Danny. It's easy. Shorten it to Danny. <laughs> I'll call him Duck Sauce. It's easy. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I really liked about. Uh, about I would say as much as I do also love Wally Sean and uh, that <laughs> you did give me a bit of a heart attack there, Mike. Um, the uh, I I loved how you could clearly see the connection between particularly the 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 leader of the thirteen who was doing most of the talking, um, and and uh, and Varys too in in the dress and the way he was holding himself because we know that Varys is from across the narrow sea. And so to see just that little bit of, and I guess the credit would go to the costumer, I would imagine, just that little bit of similarity in in dress, and uh, I think was really a nice touch. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> uh, so anything else to say about Danny or Jorah or? 
Any of that situation before we move to the big episode uh, conclusion? I, I think it's interesting, A, that they uh, bypassed an enormous section with Danny in the book mm-hmm. that I actually hated in the book and thought was just meandering and pointless. Like, it's not a spoiler for those of you that don't know. They skipped about, like, literally hundreds of and hundreds and hundreds of pages where they just sort of live in an abandoned city for no discernible reason, really, in terms of plot. Um, I, I guess it's part of, like, Danny's hardship and blah 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 but part of her journey um, but something that yeah. can easily be condensed for the purposes of the series yeah absolutely and I, and I think sometimes actually in the series I realize R.R. Martin is certainly not somebody who has a particularly diligent editor and um, certainly he's not somebody that I think has talked out of the length of certain digressions but I, I like where they are with Danny and I in general I'm very impressed with the way they're condensing the the series like I haven't once felt that they're missing anything really vital. Um, and occasionally I've actually been happier with the the decisions they've made than I was with the book's decisions. Well, one of those will be, one assumes, the introduction of Talisa uh, with Rob. And I have a feeling she'll be coming back uh, later when Rob Oh, yeah, that was totally news. different, right? That was totally different, right? That's Absolute, not how he meets her. Yes, that is not how he meets her at all. Um, but I think that was smart to yeah. Instead of having a character just appear later in the story to to really seed that. And it also, I think it gives Rob something to do besides stand around and watch his uh, awesome badass wolf kill people. Uh, so. <laughs> well, it also, it also explains what happens. Like in the book, when that eventually happens, it is always sort of a mystery as to why that happened. And they never really delve into it. I think this makes a good character choice decision. But I absolutely agree. But let, let's move to Melisandre and Davos. And uh, I wish I had it in front of me. Simon has this hilarious string of descriptors for the uh, shadow creature. Something about slithering, something about hellspawn. Um, what there's, do you... o- there's only one necessary description. This was Game of Thrones tribute to Lost. <laughs> <laughs> Game of Thrones does uh, the smoky. Uh, so, so... Now, Josh, did you get into that part of the book? Nope. No, no. I had definitely <laughs> not gotten to this. So I was compl- I hadn't even gotten to the point where Stannis and Melisandre had had sex, which I assume is a thing that happens in the book. No, off- it doesn't, actually. It well, happens I mean, off, oh. off screen. See, uh, that's interesting because I didn't think it did happen off screen. Like, I oh, thought- yeah, absolutely. But see, I thought in the book this event is just portrayed com- as a completely magical event. You you get some information. She all of a sudden she's really pregnant after after Davis is ordered to leave the room, which and then we saw what happened in episode. I think that was episode two uh, after he left. Um, and then later on, you get some information that fills in how it happened. And so then you find so you you find out later in the book that that is what happened at the beginning of the book. Right. I guess I just don't remember that. Yeah, I, I would say more, but spoilers, so I don't want Yeah, to... of course. Here's my only question, and you, obviously I don't want you to spoil it completely. Yeah. Are mm-hmm. we going to actually get an explanation at some point for what that was? What happened? Oh, Aside yeah. From, like, okay, cause, oh, yeah, don't uh, worry. That will, that will not be left ambiguous in any way. <laughs> okay, good. Because, I mean, I, I, I'm completely <laughs> on board with you know the magical elements of this show, which I know it's built up to as opposed to kind of inundating you with immediately, but... I I almost fear that it would be like mentioning Lost again. 
the four-toed statue, which you see at the end of season three, and then you don't revisit for two and a half years. <laughs> no, no, no. By the by, the end of next episode, you'll have you'll know exactly what that is. Well, uh, I, I'm holding you to that one, sir. Ish. I'm... I don't, I, don't, I I would hedge my bets a little more than 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 Mike, but you will definitely get more answers about it, and there will be further coming in in later in the season. I would oh, I actually, I guess in the book, the reason that you have a exact confirmation comes from an internal monologue, so it'll be their choice as to whether or not you'll be. You'll certainly like that thing is. You'll, you'll understand its agency. That's for sure. Yeah. Okay. Spoiler alert: It's Tyrion. <laughs> so I could be wrong about this, but I think they've made a jump in the the, the Stannis storyline to get to where we are. But I we we have talked about this a little bit, Mike, and you don't actually remember what the thing that I'm talking about. So they might not have, but um, it's definitely this the shadow creature, I guess, for lack of a better word, is is you know when I was watching it, I kept waiting for the episode break to happen later, but I guess, you know, cause my initial thought was why would you break the episode then when you could break it in about two minutes, <laughs> given what's going to happen next. But I, I'm curious keeping it again, spoiler free, uh, Mike, what do you, do you think that they made the episode break at the right place? Um, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. I, uh, I actually thought they did. I thought they it was a really smart break. I think it's the obvious break, to be honest. Um, and I think it's fun, too, because if you read the books and you know what's happening and you talk to other people that watch the show and read the book that's know what's happening, you have sort of fun of knowing what's happening. And for the people that haven't, I think it's a great cliffhanger. Um, and, you know, this moment in the books was a real shocker. Like, it was very unexpected. Um, and I think every element of it will also be very unexpected for people that haven't read the book. As somebody who hasn't gotten to this point in the book, I think it was a great way to end the episode just because it's, again, it's a classic cliffhanger moment because, it, you know, it's classic what what the fuck moment. It's a WTF moment. I mean, you're completely mm-hmm. blown away. At least I was. We, My wife and I completely no idea what's going on. And it was just one of those insane moments that if there had been a scene after that, I think the effect of that scene would have been dulled almost. Yeah, I mean, that, make, that makes complete sense. I should also add, as much as we were giving the, the visual effects team a little bit of a hard time for, for, for Karth, I mean, the, they, they, they knocked it out of the park with, with this. I was a little nervous about the uh, how, <laughs> just how, shall we say, graphic <laughs> it was going to get uh, with the camera positioning and such, but, I mean, it just it was such an effective... Uh, I guess visual effects creation. I think I think it actually looked creepier uh, than I imagined show. it. Yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> in, in fact, in in the book, it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit more sterile. It's just a little bit more shadowless, baby. In in the in the books, uh, yeah. this was this was really a baby. <laughs> yeah, uh, and yeah. like I said, it is Tyrion. It's totally Tyrion. <laughs> Well, as soon as he starts, uh, you know, hanging out and uh, getting into wacky adventures with a lovable sidekick, then we'll know it's definitely got to be got to be Tyrion. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it was just uh, not perhaps for me not quite as strong as as last week's episode. Um, maybe just by virtue of I, I missed Brienne. 
this episode, I would have liked to, to see more of her. Um, and, and while I really enjoyed the, the, the Danny scene, the, as ridiculously crazy as that final scene was, I think I enjoyed the, the climax with Yorin last week a little bit more, but it's definitely, it's been a really strong season. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's certainly getting better and better too. Yeah, definitely. I I think it was, I think last week's episode was maybe a little more solid, but this was still really well done. Yeah. So, uh, Josh, where can our our listeners find you online? You can find me on uh, the Masterpiece Cinema Podcast, all about Disney movies each week. I co-host it with Mike Ryan and Gabe Buxco, and you can find that on Sound On Sight. And you can follow me on Twitter at Masterpiece. Well, and your most recent uh, show was Cool Runnings, right? That's right. We we did Cool Runnings, and uh, this coming Saturday, we're Gabe and I are doing Cinderella Two: Dreams Come True. It's a direct to DVD sequel that we both forced ourselves to watch. I don't know how we survived it, but we did. <laughs> <laughs> Good times. So people can can check out there. Um, yes, Mike, you are still hiding from twitter as i understand actually i'm hiding from twitter but i have just received well a couple weeks ago uh hot dogs press accreditation so i will be reviewing like 23 films over the next week at hot dogs so people interested in the newest and best in documentary films should check out sound on site over the next week for a copious number of reviews Good times. I'll have to check that. I see the, these documentaries like never find their way to me in the in the cinema because of where I live. So I always have to wait and try to like remember them all for when they come out on DVD. But uh, I will definitely be, be keeping an eye out for those. Um, I'm on Twitter at the Televerse, and you guys can always drop me a line there and let me know what you're thinking about Game of Thrones. Or you can also, of course, listen to me talk TV with Simon uh, from Set on Site. Uh, in our TV podcast, The Televerse, which comes out every Tuesday. Uh, but yeah, it's it's been fun talking with you guys. And I can't wait to, to just see exactly where they're going to take the rest of the season. It's, I, I, keep, I, I said this last week, but I guess I, I feel like I'm going to keep saying this every week until the finale. Shit is going to get real. <laughs> Fantastically real. Yeah. <laughs> well, some somewhat shadowy Hellspawn, you know, that's not, I don't know how tangibly real that is particular <laughs> bit is going to get but it's pretty great so um thank you everyone for for listening we uh we k- introed with a piano take on the on the game of thrones theme and we are going to uh leave with uh, a song from uh robson and jerome or robson and jerome i'm not sure exactly how it's pronounced uh who are a pop duo from the 90s and fans of Game of Thrones may recognize one of if you if you look it up online at least you'll recognize one of these uh, singers uh, as our very own Braun from Game of Thrones. So I think we're gonna take it out with uh, "Up on a Roof." So up on the roof. So I- enjoy, and we'll be back next week with our take on the next episode of Game of Thrones. Up on the roof.